right around the corner, Jesse. Does that mean what I think it means? Yup, it's time for another episode of Hellmark Holidays. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Bray, and this is a Love Murder Holiday Quickie. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime meets human interest and where the holidays can be a bloody bad time. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. And as always, we really love and appreciate all of the reviews you guys send us this way. And to show our appreciation, we would love to send you a code so you can get some free stickers on us. Okay, Jesse. So Hellmark Holidays number two. Same format? Yes, we are again doing the one Christmas murder sandwiched by two slightly lighter Christmas crimes. So as you know, Dan and I like never spend Christmas in LA ever. I know. Somewhere, yeah. So obviously we have to this year because we can't go anywhere. And you guys assigned me a killing, Christmas killing, right up the street from my house. (laughs) Yeah, we did that on purpose. We just really wanted to make you feel comforted and home for the holidays. So not only do I need to subject myself to it now, but then I have to edit it. (laughs) let's let's just consider that our present to you andy let me give you the gift of anxiety and terror for christmas great so you're kicking it off and you're closing it off which i'm very happy about yes you are the murder mead in this sandwich um so i have murder vegan meat (laughs) it's you're the beyond murder meat here (laughs) Okay, so both of my stories are very wild. And this is this first one's a little bit long, but it's about an incredible story that occurred on December 23rd in 1927. So it's kind of historical, too. So this one's called The Night the Posse Chased Santa. Posse? The Posse. Yeah, this is a Texas crime. Oh, my God. So this one's by Maggie Van Ostrand, and she did a phenomenal job on this article. So I will be reading it verbatim. So thank you, Maggie. December 23rd will mark the 93rd anniversary of the bloody melodrama, which was about to take place in the town of Cisco in West Central Texas on the day before Christmas Eve, 1927. I know about it because of an article written at the time by the great Texas columnist, Boyce House. He should know. He was there. House wrote that this was the most spectacular crime in the history of the Southwest, surpassing any in which Billy the Kid or the James Boys had ever figured. Here's the story told sometimes in my words, sometimes in houses. A smiling Santa Claus came along Main Street December 23rd, 1927, stopping to chat with eager children, answering their questions and patting them on the head. When Santa came up to the First National Bank, he looked all around to his left and to his right, the way you would if you were about to sneak into the movies after your mother told you you couldn't go. 
some of the happy children who had followed Santa continued on into the bank after him. Once inside, Santa received a pleasant greeting of hello, Santa, from the cashier. Santa did not respond, but walked to a desk in the middle of the lobby, the one where bank customers wrote out their deposit slips. A few customers were already at the teller's window making their deposits. The cashier again called out, hey, Santa. Again, no response. Right about this time, a young man entered the bank, pointed a pistol at the cashier and snarled, hands up. A second bandit entered. He was also brandishing a gun. A third armed man entered. Santa Claus pushed through the swinging door, past the cashier's desk, went into the cashier's cage, opened a drawer under the counter, and removed a pistol from that location, stuffing it under his red Santa suit. Now there were four armed men, including Santa Claus. Isn't this wild? Santa ordered the assistant cashier to open the safe and began stuffing money and bonds into a sack he had hidden beneath this costume. A sack that should have rightly held Christmas toys for children, but not this Santa. Unseen by the four unsavory robbers, a woman bank patron made it through the bookkeeping department and out the side door of the bank, which opened onto an alley. She ran until she reached the police department and entered shouting, The First National is being held up! Here I quote House's article, Police Chief G.E. Bit Bedford, a giant of a man and a veteran peace officer, seized a riot gun and he and policeman George Carmichael started for the scene. Meanwhile, inside the bank, one of the men with an automatic in each hand growled at the bookkeeper, don't look at me. By this time, Santa Claus had filled his sack with loot. He then fired the bullet striking the bank's plate glass window. It was surmised at the time that this shot might have been a signal to unseen accomplices that the robbery had been accomplished. Immediately, Bedford and Carmichael directed crossfire at the side door and the two-gunned robber fired back, first at Carmichael and then at Bedford. The four robbers took as hostages two little girls who were in the bank and using them as shields, made their way into the alley to the getaway car. Whoa. Crazy. A bullet struck the cashier in the jaw. Another struck a bank customer in the leg. And well, yet another customer made for a run for it and was able to tell Bedford and Carmichael about the hostages. More than 100 shots had been fired, one hitting police Carmichael, and another, Chief Bedford, as the getaway car screamed out of the alley, turning south on Main. One of the shots from law enforcement had hit the tire of the getaway car, flattening it and stopping the vehicle. The robbers, one of whom had been hit by a flying bullet, lurched out of the vehicle, brandishing their guns and commandeering a passing car. Back at the scene, Chief Bedford and policeman Carmichael lay dying of their wounds. And six ordinary citizens were also wounded. Oh, my God. I know. This is sad. Right before Christmas, they're poor families. I thought you were supposed to be, like, the fun, like, Hawaiian bun. No. This is, like, this is like a gnarly bun on top. It'll be the, – the bottom one is fun, I promise. It's like a gluten-free bun. <laughs> it's a gluten-free bun with seven grains. <laughs> <laughs> 
onlookers rushed to hardware stores for pistols and rifles. They opened fire. These are the citizens. And a rifle bullet struck one of the fugitives in the arm and spun him around. This is getting too hot, shouted the leader, the two-gunned bandit, who was found later to be named Henry Helms. So they jumped back in their car with the flat tire and the two little girls. They raced out Maine, two of the desperados firing back at the automobile filled with pursuers. The driver swung onto a dirt road and his companions tossed roofing nails out to puncture the tires of the posse's machines. Oh my God. This is wild, huh? Sheriff John Hart and his deputies of Eastland, the county seat, had been called by long distance and given the news of the bank robbery. They piled into automobiles and sped to the spot where the bandits had abandoned the car. Officers and citizens poured in from all that section of the state and such a manhunt as Western Texas had never seen before was soon in progress. Many members of the posse were horseback or on foot as they beat their way through clumps of trees, searched high grass in the bottoms of ravines, and peered around bounders and canyons. This is like a serious civilian posse. The pursuit continued all through that Friday afternoon, Friday night, and throughout Saturday and Saturday night. One of the results of the Yuletide crime was its tragic implications for little children in Eastland County. On Christmas Eve, a church in Eastland was filled, and as Jolly St. Nicholas entered, a little boy called out with a quaver in his voice, Santa Claus, why did you rob that bank? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that poor baby. Oh, oh my God. Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Oh, Chief Bedford died on Christmas Day. Jesse! I'm so sorry. I kind of forgot about this part when I found this story. I found this story weeks ago. Unbelievable. And Police Carmichael a few days later. Jessica. Andrea. That is not polite. (laughs) This is a sad story. Luckily, we have your story, and then I I have the bottom bun. The bottom bun is delicious. It's, it's actually kind of heartwarming for a crime story. So it's Santa, definitely not gluten-free. It's definitely not gluten-free. Santa Claus was really a crook named Marshall Ratliff who had lived in Cisco before being tracked down and imprisoned for a bank robbery in Valera by the very same Chief Bedford. So he had a bone to pick. Though Ratcliffe was given a long prison sentence, he had been paroled just before the Cisco bank robbery. Since he knew he would be recognized if he returned to Cisco, he decided to conceal his identity by disguising himself as Santa. Such a disguise would also allay any suspicions by people in the bank. Who would suspect Santa Claus? The complete set of robbers were not apprehended until December 30th, seven days after the bank robbery. The greatest manhunt in the history of Western Texas had ended. It was little 10-year-old Emma May Robinson's testimony that identified Ratcliffe as the man disguised as Santa Claus who had robbed the bank and kidnapped her. So luckily the little girl survived. The jury's verdict was 99 years. On the way to his cell, Ratcliffe muttered, That's no hill for a high stepper like me. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. Helms was sentenced to death and Hill, who cried for mercy and told of his unhappy childhood, was given a sentence of life imprisonment. 
Ratliff was tried again, this time for the murder of Chief Bedford, and he got the death sentence. But that was not the end of Ratliff. No, indeed. Feigning paralysis to his unsuspecting jailers while awaiting execution in the hot seat, the man who had played Santa managed to get a hold of a six-shooter, fatally wound one jailer, and violently fight the second jailer in hand-to-hand combat, sometimes able to get off shots while thankfully missing their mark. Most of the town, including the fighting jailer's daughter, watched helplessly through the jail windows, unable to break open the steel door to help. At last, the courageous jailer pinned Ratliff down and beat him into unconsciousness and then returned him to his cell. The next night, a vengeful mob invaded the jail, grabbed Ratliff, dragged him to a vacant lot behind a local theater, and hanged him until he was dead. That's some Texas shit. That's some Texas justice right there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's the last line. I just kind of beat myself to the punch there. The notorious Christmas bank robbery ended as all criminal acts should end, even if it is Santa Claus with Texas justice. Wow. Wow. Isn't that insane? So crazy. So crazy. I'm glad those, those varmints got hung high. Oh my god. All right. Okay, let's let's have the the murder vegan meat, please. The real story behind LA's most famous and mysterious murder house. The story, <gasps> uh-huh. The story is by Adrian Glick Cudler for Curbed Los Angeles. Hometown story. We got <sighs> right up. So is this it takes place like near where you live? Yeah, it's like it's in Los Feliz. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm listening. The handsome Spanish Revival Mansion at 2475 Glendower Place in wealthy Los Feliz has long been one of Los Angeles' creepiest mysteries. If the story was just that a doctor had killed his wife with a ball-peen hammer, then himself with nembutal and pills, it'd still get passed around among neighborhood kids. But after the murder-suicide, the house sold and stayed empty for decades, still decorated for Christmas, as it supposedly had been on the December night of the murders. Oh. It was a- It was a lovely house in a desirable neighborhood, abandoned to piles of old trash, thrill-seeking trespassers, and a murdery mystery bus. Now, Jeff Maish at Medium has dug up the real story of the Los Feliz murder house, just as its fates might be about to change for the first time since 1959. The story of the murder-suicide itself is more or less the same one that it's been circulating on the internet for ages. At 4.30 in the morning on December 6, 1959, cardiologist Harold Perelson struck his sleeping wife Lillian in the head with a ball-peen hammer, then left her to asphyxiate on her own blood, and he went... Oh, God, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a murder house, you know, like, you know you're going to get into some, like, murdery shit. Yes. And he went into his teenage daughter Judy's room, where he struck her in the head with the same hammer. Do Did you know he survive? I, um, Jesse, it's like really rude when you interrupt and ask questions. <laughs> I am definitely not as good a listener as I am a teller. I'm a little interrupter. <laughs> um, <laughs> the hit was off though, and Judy started screaming waking the neighbors with screams of don't kill me as her father told her to lay still and keep quiet. Judy escaped, found her mother, then ran out of the house, found a neighbor and called the police. So that's oh, thank God. 
Yeah, it's good for Judy. Yeah. Um, back in the house, when Judy's two younger siblings woke up, her father told them, go back to bed. This is a nightmare. Then he took two doses of Nembutal and 31 small white pills believed to be codeine or a powerful tranquilizer, went to lie down and was dead before the ambulance arrived. Oh, he took the easy way out. I would like to see him locked up. Bitch work. Mm Mm-hmm. Internet rumors say there's still a Christmas tree and wrapped presents left in the house from the night of 1959. Trespassers have found SpaghettiOs and Life magazines, and you don't have to look very hard for someone to tell you that it's extremely haunted. No one, though, seems to know why Perelson would have committed this horrible act or why the house would be left to decay for more than 50 years. Crazy. So the kids didn't want to inherit it and try to sell it or just nobody wanted it? I don't know. I mean, I would have fucking ran and never looked back, wouldn't you have? Yeah, but I feel like if it was my inheritance, I would have like hired some service to like yeah, clean it out and sell it. But I don't know what they had available in 1959, you know? Yeah. Mesh tracks down as much of the story as there may be to track down. A neighbor who was 14 at the time of the murder-suicide says Perelson was quite a mild-mannered man, but he seemed to be in a lot of financial trouble. Does that sound familiar? Ooh, family annihilators. Whenever they start having financial troubles, they take out their families. A partner had stolen the rights to a medical device he'd come up with and sunk thousands of dollars into developing. He hemorrhaged more money in a long legal battle over the matter and won only $23,956 at the end. That's like so precise. Yeah. 1957, Judy and her siblings were in a car accident at Vermont and Los Feliz Boulevard. Perelson oh, no. sued the other driver involved, but won only enough to cover medical bills. Judy wrote her, her aunt shortly before her father's attacks. My parents, so to speak, are in a bind financially. Perelson had multiple coronaries, or that's what the family told people. It came out later that they actually were suicide attempts and that Perelson was going to be committed. Oh, why did he have to take his wife with him? when he went mental unrest yeah none of the none of the kids responded to mesh's request for an interview but he found that an aunt probably took guardianship of the two younger perelson children in 1960 the house sold in a probate auction to a couple from lincoln heights named emily and julian enriquez there's a rumor that another family briefly rented the house after the perelsons and that it's their christmas tree in the living room the perelsons were reportedly jewish the rumor goes on that they fled the house on the anniversary of the attack leaving their wrapped presents behind most of the other junk in the house dates to sometime after the murders as well emily and yeah yeah so i wonder why they fled yeah emily enriquez died in 1994 and her son rudy who lived in washington heights inherited the house still no one has moved in Mesh tried to reach Enriquez, but it turns out he died sometime this year. Oh, this is so creepy. Somebody should make... There's not enough holiday horror movies, personally, I think. Somebody could make a hella good holiday horror movie about this. Um, And the son, Rudy, had no children either. That means the Los Feliz murder house is probably out of stagnancy and into limbo for the first time just since after the murders. The 1925 house was lovely when the Perelsons moved in, designed by Harry E. Weiner. <laughs> Weiner. <laughs> I'm so immature. I'm like, <laughs> I knew it. I knew you were going to laugh. It had a tiled entrance hall, glass conservatory, breakfast room, and a third floor ballroom and bar. It was a great old Los Feliz estate. By now, it's probably a teardown. Oh, wow. 
What Jeremy, go snap a picture. Go get a picture, please. Let's see how far it is. Let's see how far it is from your house. That is devastating in so many ways. Yeah, but I mean, it like you know, 1959. Like when wasn't that around the same time as our Annihilator? Yeah. Um, uh, he was later. He was in um, like the 70s. Ooh, it's like up in the hills of Los Feliz. So there's this like along. It's like right below the observatory, the Griffith oh, Observatory. Yep. Does it look like the murder house from American Horror Story? Um, no, it's oh my god. Oh, you can see like stuff inside still, like all <gasps> disheveled. Ooh, it's so creepy. I don't want to zoom in. I just want the like picture of the house. Maybe you shouldn't go over there to take a picture. I don't want you to have like any ghosts attacking you or your unborn child. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) We'd like to. We've already got COVID enough. (laughs) We've got enough problems in our pregnancies. We don't need to have a haunted fetus. Dude, that's so wild. What a crazy story. That one's like old Hollywood slash murder mystery. Yeah. That's creepy. It's actually like technically Griffith Park. I mean, like that's it's like right there on the edge. Maybe we'll like when I can finally come visit you again, we'll go and do like a little murder tour of LA. Okay. That would be fun. Although I guess we'll have babies, so we'll have to (laughs) take them with us. You know what else is up there, near there, is the Black Dahlia, the house that the Black Dahlia do live in. Oh, yeah, we should should absolutely do that. You know where we're not going? Where? Is the place downtown, the old um, hotel. Oh, Cecil? (gasps) That's so close to your old office. I know. We're not going there. Um, I had to – what's the really good um, bookstore down there? Uh, the last bookstore. The last bookstore. So when I left your old office, I had to walk by there, by the Cecil, to get to the the last bookstore. Bookstore, and I was pregnant with Alden. I remember, and it was it was so freaking me out because there was that one death that happened because the person committed suicide and jumped off the roof and landed on somebody like the street below mm-hmm. um because they had were trying to figure out why there was two dead people and it was like the person just was unlucky was just like walking underneath when the person hit them and killed them i got so freaked out i crossed the street i was like oh, i'm yeah. crossing the street and walking <laughs> around not. it this way i never walked in front of that building it's terrifying is totally cursed okay so this is this is gonna end on like this is definitely this is our last hellmark this is our last christmas crime and i think that this one is definitely the cutest okay Okay, so this one is called it's cuter than the squirrel because nobody like the squirrel probably got broken and you know then there was like that guy that got assaulted and nobody had beer for christmas so, so it's kind of negative. a sad story after all this one is actually just kind of cute it's it's from cbs news and it's called intruder enters ohio home decorates for christmas by barry Lebowitz. <laughs> this took place in vandalia ohio It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas at one home in a Dayton, Ohio suburb, thanks to a man who police say broke in and started hanging up Yuletide decorations. Oh, my God. (laughs) They also say the burglar, who was already... (laughs) 
sorry. They also say the burglar was all already in the holiday spirit because he was high on bath salts. <laughs> Wait, what year was this? Was this like during the sorry, bath this salt is, episode? This is was that in 2011? Because this is November 16th, 2011. Yeah, it was around is, that time when people were like eating other people in Miami. Do you yeah, that? I'm really glad that this guy. Like, just instead of eating somebody's face, he just decorated for the holidays. This would 100% be what Nathaniel would be like on bath salts, by the way. <laughs> Guys, I love this story so much. Andy's probably heard it a million times. But when I first started dating Nathaniel, he thought he was going to move to L.A., and so he owned absolutely nothing. I mean, he was peak bachelor. Like the first night I slept at his house, I slept on a batch like a bachelor mattress on the floor. He had no curtains. He had like a ripped up love seat that his rescue pit bull had ripped up. Um, he didn't have remember Andy when you went to his house, he didn't have a doorknob or a light in the bathroom. It was brutal. He owned one fork. And one plate and one frying pan. Like, the, it was like peak. I'm shocked he even had a frying pan. I know. <laughs> um, but he was really, really cute and smart, and I liked him. So he's lucky because I remember, like, nothing worked. He's like, don't use the sink in the bathroom, but also the light doesn't work in the kitchen. Actually, maybe we'll just go to the bar downstairs. I was like, what the hell did I get myself into? But this is the same guy that we got married really fast. And our first Christmas together was the first Christmas we had ever spent together at all. Even though we were married already, we had never spent any other Christmas together. And we both are from the East Coast originally, which is why um, we're here now. But we had met in San Francisco. So the first Christmas, he's like, okay, when are we going to get our Christmas tree? And I was like, why are we getting a Christmas tree? We're going back home east to celebrate the holidays. It'll be wasted on Christmas. He was so offended that I suggested we not get a Christmas tree. And I was like, okay, fine. We'll go get a Christmas tree. But what are we going to like? Then we have to buy all these decorations and, you know, and he's like, I have decorations. I was like, you don't have more than a single fork. When we eat dinner here, we have to take turns using the one fork <laughs> and one plate. You don't have Christmas decorations. And he's like, oh, let me show you. And he opened up a closet door that I didn't even know existed and pulled out five huge like Tupperware bins of decorations like little stuffed animals that sang carols and garlands and decorations that had been in his family for years. I was like, you don't have a couch, but you have five bins of Christmas decorations. So anyways, I, I interrupted the story to tell a very long winded story about my husband, but definitely get yourself, get you a man who loves Christmas because it's the cutest goddamn thing in the world. Now that you like you guys are like brother and sister, Andy, does that story surprise you at all? No, it doesn't surprise me. But also, like if that if I were you in that situation, I would have ran. <laughs> if someone pulled out a talking like animatronic fucking like reindeer that sang Christmas songs out of a Tupperware bin from their closet, <laughs> I would have fucking ran. I would have been like. I gotta go. Yeah, but like, like so thankful that he has them so that we can come see you with them. But like, I that's could not be more. 
Oh yeah, Andy and I. Andy is very like minimalistic, very tasteful, very Scandinavian design. And you come to our house, and it's like a Michaels or a Home Goods like threw up everywhere. But it's so fun. It's so fun, but it's just not our home. It's like decorative pillows, lights everywhere, Dickens villages. It's gonna be fun for the kids, I think. And doesn't help with my anxiety about inanimate objects potentially moving in the middle of the night. No, I think your goddaughter inherited that too, because like nothing scares her, but like singing Santa scared the crap out of her. So she definitely got that from you. Sorry. <laughs> okay, wait. Back to our our bath festive bath salts burglar here. Terry Trent, 44, was arrested and charged with burglary last week in Vandalia, according to the station, when an 11-year-old boy found the man sitting on the couch after he had done some Christmas decorating around the house. Vandalia police said that Trent entered through one of the home's back doors and made himself comfortable, lighting candles on the coffee and kitchen tables, as well as having the television's volume on very loudly. Trent had also hung a Christmas wreath on the back garage door. Oh, my God. (laughs) When discovering that Trent was watching television and playing with the boys' things, the 11-year-old boy called his mother, who was next door at their neighbor's house. The mother told police that Trent attempted to be polite to the boy. He was arrested without incident, but police did find that he was carrying a pocket knife. He had said to him, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. I'll get my things and go now, the boy's mother said. (laughs) I mean, he needed something to cut the garland with. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it was something nefarious. One man who was working with Trent last week described him as a very caring person involved with the Boy Scouts and a local church program to help convicted felons currently in prison. Why was he taking bath salts? I don't know. I don't. If you help Boy Scouts and you work at a local church program, you should not be taking bath salts. No. No, never. Unless they're like the kind that actually go in your bath and you don't take them. You just enjoy them. Yeah, like you don't ingest them. You don't ingest them. What is bath salts, by the way? What kind of drug is that? I think it's like a homemade meth. Oh, my God. Yeah, I I think it's it's like a legit, let's see. Well, the witness said that he wasn't acting well that day. The man said, describing Trent as mentally unstable. Now, if he's on bath salts, he's not acting well. No. Police indicated that Trent, who is being held in Montgomery County Jail, has a history of drug charges. And okay. that's the story. Oh, God. So they call it bath salts because it looks like bath salts. Okay. Not because not it's actually bath salts. Not because it's made with bath salts. <laughs> How many people do you think have eaten bath salts thinking they're going to get high? And it's it's... It's a psychoactive designer drug that emerged in the United States in 2010. So he was on like kind of the head of the trend in 2011. Trendsetter. Trendsetter. Uh, Trendsetter, um, because that was his name. (laughs) It's um, cheaper than cocaine and meth. Oh, God. That sounds like an unholy alliance. They're not a hygiene product used for bathing. Just so everyone knows. So don't. <laughs> don't try to don't try to ingest either bath salts, either either the ones that go in your bath or these ones, because it's not but gonna yeah. end well. It's it's like a rush similar to methamphetamine, so speed. Wild. But it has like psychoactive effects, which is why people were like eating people's faces in Miami. 
Oh my goodness. Well, I think this was had a happier ending than people losing their faces, obviously. I think so too. I mean, I would have been like, you could keep decorating, man. <laughs> I know. Yeah, know what- Nathaniel would be like best friends with him at the end. <laughs> I'm oh sure if you were like high to the the singing animals would be like really interesting. Oh god, so into it. Or scary. <laughs> Either one. <laughs> okay, so that is the last holiday hallmark we have one Christmas Eve episode coming out this Wednesday and I'm glad that we had this happy ending to the Hallmark series because the story we're going to tell you guys for our Christmas episode is brutal. Uh-oh. It's, yeah, Andy, it's our largest body count ever, and it's a gruesome story. So get ready for a bloody Christmas this year, guys. Um, and thank you so much for listening to these little bonus episodes. We really appreciate you, and we hope that you have a wonderful holiday and you stay off the bath salts. Bye.